Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of So How'd You Get Here? I'm one of your hosts, Angelo. And I'm Tony. Welcome to the show. Coming at you from uh, gloomy Hollywood, California. Yeah, this on this weather's got to change. June gloom, right? Yeah. I know. In honor of the gray gloom, we're going to bring in rays of sun sunshine. Rays of sunshine. From, rays uh, all the way from Redondo Beach. Redondo Beach, California, where it's never cloudy. Thank you for coming to the show here today. Mr. Ron Seltzer, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I, uh, I've heard great things about you, and somehow you're connected to hockey, and uh, my uh, producing partner next to me, uh, yeah. Mr. Tony, he says good things about you, so uh, Yeah, I met Ron, I don't know, it's got to be five years ago now? At least. At least five years ago. Um, my love for hockey, he is a um, hockey agent. He's repped several NHL Hall of Famers. Currently, he's repping Brent Burns, who plays for the Carolina Hurricane was on the San Jose Sharks for, I think, like 13 seasons or something crazy. 11. Um, oh, 11. I, I was close. Um, but, yeah, uh, Brent's a great guy. I love Ron. Always have great conversations with him, and I'm really happy that he came on to do the podcast. Ron, um, the podcast is So How'd You Get Here? So, obviously, we want to know your journey into hockey, but give us a little backstory on kind of like where you grew up, how you grew up. Well, <clears throat> I got here driving the streets of Hollywood. That's it. Which wasn't so easy. Yeah. But I made it. So, oh, okay, uh, podcast is over. See you later. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, now you got to drive back. <laughs> so I'm the son of uh, a mother and father that were born in Czechoslovakia. They're both Holocaust survivors. My mother was in Auschwitz. My father was in a horrible camp by the name of Mauthausen. And um, they, uh, they were fortunate to survive barely, and they moved to Israel. Before it was Israel, they went with an underground organization called the Haganah by boat. They went to Israel, but it was still Palestine, British run in 46. They were two, it's a long time on a boat, and then they put him in a work camp for two years. My dad um, was part of the Haganah, became part of the Israeli Air Force, and uh, my father was a pretty smart guy. I was born there, and uh, when I was six and a half, my father wanted to find a land of opportunity because uh, he was very successful in Israel, but he wanted to go somewhere else. And, so one day he came home and said, we're leaving. So I was on my way and moved to New York. And it's ironic, but probably my second night in New York City, my father wanted to take me to a hockey game because Stan Makita was a great player from Czechoslovakia. He mm -hmm. wanted to see him. And here I am, seven years old, watching ice for the first time. I came from the desert. I never seen anything like hockey. And how ironic it was that that ended up being my career. That's insane. Wow. 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 Yeah. And it was the Rangers versus, do you remember? Rangers, I do remember. Because it was, it was, it was that was the original six, Ben? Yeah, yeah, it was 1960. Okay. And it was the original six of Chicago Blackhawks, New York Rangers. Wow. I have vivid memories of that game. So that was my that's first incredible. night in New York City. And, um, and then we ended up moving there, and that's where I grew up. So you grew up in where? I grew Brooklyn? up in New York. And, uh, well, we grew up in a town. Um, it was in Regal Park, Queens. We had a small okay. little apartment. My mother, my father, my sister. My aunt was the other survivor, my father's uh, sister, and myself, five of us, and lived there for like three years. Hardly saw my dad because he was working all the time. Yeah. And when my parents came to this country, um, they were 35, approximately. My father had to learn his fifth language. My mother had to learn her sixth language. They lost everyone in their life. And um, it's amazing, you know, what they were able to accomplish, what my dad was able to do. And... I used to joke around because I had a friend of mine. His name uh, was Marty. And his dad, he, he was home all the time, you know. So I remember saying to my father, I said, you know, my friend Marty's father's home all the time. I never see you. I wake up in the morning, you're not home. I go to sleep, you're not home. So maybe six months later, we move into a mansion in Forest Hills, Queens. And I'm looking out this window, and I see a pool and cabanas. And I say to my dad, Abba, which is father and he, did you rob a bank? He goes, no, I just made $5 a week more than your friend Marty's father did. And that always kind of sat with me, you know, that yeah. the hard work that he did. And he ended up with uh, 16 patents, my what? dad made. Wow. A lot of patents. and. Uh, Can I ask a, in what area? Yeah. What's so, is he inventing? He's like, inventing. I, so what he did originally in Israel, he was really successful. He started a rubber factory by the name of Magam. And uh, he was known as, at 28, the leader of the Industrial Revolution in Israel. And then when he came to the United States, like I said, he had to start his life all over. And my parents never acted like victims. They yep. didn't say, poor us, what are we entitled to? They never talked to me about it. 
I thought I was the luckiest kid in the world. Can you imagine what your parents experienced? And I thought to myself, now, how do they go to sleep every night knowing what they saw and what they had to experience and watching everyone in their family be eliminated, but then have an amazing life and never really talking about it with me at all? You know, very fortunate to have incredible loving parents, and that's kind of how it all Did they not talk to you about it because they didn't want to bring up memories themselves? Did you ever have that conversation? No, they just never wanted me to feel any guilt. Got it. They, I mean, f to experience what they had to experience, you can't imagine what it's like to lose everyone in your family. Right. And I, I, I didn't want, they didn't want me to feel any guilt about any of that. So I never, never heard about it. I just thought I was a lucky kid and uh, I couldn't have had better parents. But uh, my dad was, uh, was a, an interesting guy. He was brilliant and the things he did, to answer your question, a lot in plastics. Like when he first came to the United States, he went and looked around, what can I manufacture? He made the first machine washable plastic lace tablecloth huh. and sold everywhere, Macy's everywhere. Um, uh, one of the most, and, and, and actually, you know, you'll probably get into it, but uh, he made the first carbon composite hockey stick. Like you give my dad anything. He'd look at it, think about how he can make it better, faster, cheaper. And uh, I represented Pavel Bure. And Pavel was one of the best players in the world. Yeah. yeah. And my father, uh, I showed him, and he made a hockey stick, which was carbon composite. And Pavel played with it. Two years in a row, he scored 60 goals using this stick they used to call uh, the Wonder Boy stick. And uh, he was a Russian rocket. And uh, wow. so my, my dad made the first carbon composite hockey stick also. But he had a lot of patents, 16 altogether. And then hockey stick companies manufactured that, that same design? So... The sad part about that, which is unfortunate, everything my dad always did, he always manufactured himself. Okay. This particular product, it was later on in his life, so he hired a company by the name of Kobe Steel out of Japan in Cleveland, Ohio, to make the stick. And so now what happened was, because Pavel Bure scored 60 goals two years in a row, Bauer contacted me. Yeah. They, they took Pavel to be the main sponsor. There were billboards, uh, posters of him every store. They bought a half a million sticks, and uh, th this was it. Like, it was going out, selling. All of a sudden, they're coming back breaking, one after another after another, not supposed to break at all. So I kept one, and I give it to my father, and he looks at it. He dissected it, and he goes, they left the layer off. Like, when you make a carbon stick, you have to make a layer this way, a layer this way, ah. and then a 45-degree layer. So they were they trying to do the, the, the cheap way? They eliminated the 45-degree yeah. layer to yeah. save money. Yeah. So, and this is where, you know, I... I couldn't do anything about it, but we ended up in litigation. Go to a mediator. He listens to everything I just told you, and the yep. mediator looks at them and goes, you lose. Looks at my father and I, you win. What are your damages? And at that time, you know, no one knew that carbon composite is going to be the stick of the future. Right. So it was hard to say. Well, this Can't is quantify ever, that, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. we ended up getting back uh, all our R&D money. But we never really benefited uh, yeah. at all. But I felt, you know, my dad was pretty amazing that he even made yeah. that stick. You guys aren't co-owners in Bauer. <laughs> no co-owners. But, I, you know, I still have the stick. I, could sh I should have brought it. You could see the stick that he played with, what my yeah. dad made. We like memorabilia, so if you want to bring it, we'll, keep, we'll put it here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring a broken down stick. We'll keep it. Hey, listen, you I'm being serious. You'll the have right to way and back. the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. invite you back. Bring me back. I'll bring I know it's a lot gifts. of rights and lefts, but you got here. I should, yeah. <laughs> I should have brought some gifts. So you're growing up. Now, yes, you went to a hockey game with your father. You're living in the city. Obviously, New York Rangers are huge. But you said in conversations you and I just had, um, basketball was your thing? You were a, you were, I played I, basketball. Yeah. I grew up as a kid. You know, I... I played soccer in Israel. That's all I ever played. Right. But when I came to the United States, I started playing baseball and, and basketball. Those yeah. are more of the sports I played. Right. But uh, I loved hockey. I always loved hockey, and I did play it. But not a, I played intramurally, not at a high level. Yeah. I wasn't so great. But I, I enjoyed playing it. So it was, it was kind of fun. Now, did you think sports was going to be a path for you as a future? Or did you go to college for to be a lawyer? Like, what was the, what was the next? I never... I never imagined being an agent at all because right. back then it wasn't even on the radar. Yeah. No one thought about being an agent. Now you can learn about it in universities. It's taught every school pretty much has a program for yeah. that. There was no, uh, n no insight at all into any of that. So I wasn't thinking about being an agent. It didn't happen like that. When I moved to Marina Del Rey, I moved into the Oakwood Apartments in Marina Del Rey. And um, the first guys I met were playing pro hockey for the LA Kings. I was 21. And they were 23, 24, 28. It was Bob Nevin, 
Dave Hutchison, Bert so, Wilson, like hanging out with them. Gary Sargent. Yeah. And they said, hey, kid, you come with us. So the next thing I know, you know, I'm with these guys. Couldn't have a better education about character, about courage, about friendship, about responsibility. These guys were unbelievable. And not just because they took me to all the strip joints, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, we went to all the beer places. But yeah. I really learned about, you know, what these guys were like. And they weren't making any money. This, they is, played, this is this is 70, I was 75 to okay. 80. Okay. So, it so they're really playing for the love of the game. There's they're, no, they're not, yeah. They're fighting to make right. 50000 a year right. yeah. and uh, barely, you know, make it ends meet. Yeah. They all have like second jobs, like painters in the offseason. It was tough. Yeah. It was tough. Yeah. Like, as a matter of fact, that was sad because many of those players in the 80s became destitute because right. they, here they are, they play hockey for 10, 12, 13 years. They're 32, 33. They come out, they got a wife, they got kids. They can't maintain the same quality of life. Mm -hmm. But all their friends that graduated college at 21 are so far ahead of them. It, it, it became a difficult time. So for those years I was with the players, I heard all the horror stories about how they were disenchanted with their agents, financially insecure, emotionally unstable, coming to the twilight of their career. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was hard to hear. And then one of the guys I was really close with, Dave Taylor, he came to me and he said, you know, Ronnie, I have an agent, but he represents, it was the, the year they won the, U, uh, they won the medal, uh, the Olympics, 1980, 1980 Olympic yeah. team, the Miracle on Ice yep, team. Yep. And says, you know, he never calls me back. I hardly hear from him. Why don't you be my agent? I never thought about it. I go, you know, we're good friends. I trust him. I'll do it. You know, it was a great challenge for me. And what an opportunity, really. Yeah. And at that time, you know, guys were fighting to make fifty or 75000 but um, what did you think being an agent entailed? Like, did you know anything about contracts? Did you know I'm just going to have to hustle and make phone calls and get this guy a better deal than what he already has? So, I, like, I, like I mentioned, was that, you know, through five years of being with the guys and, yeah. and, and hearing them and being close, as you know, you really get into their soul and you learn about what they're going through. So I knew all. I had, I had all this emotion, but it's good to have it without going into these things knowing what you know without having to be emotional right and with dave um you know he trusted me i i knew hockey really well and um i had a business background i was good at negotiating i knew what i was talking about and i knew the game so um yeah i, I felt very confident and actually i got thrown right into it because the first guy that was uh i went to was a guy named george mcguire who was kind of a I mean, not to say anything bad about anybody. He was one of those bitter guys that, you know, hockey players don't deserve much. And it didn't go good with him. So I said, you know, we're not going to get a deal done. This is, we'll be a free agent. But then Jerry Buss contacted me. And I spent almost a year with Dr. Buss, which was an amazing year wow. being with him and learning so much. And at the end of that year, like I said, players were fighting to make seventy-five, a 100000 We signed a seven-year, $6 million contract, which was unheard of in 1980. Yeah. So... You know, and I, I give Dave Taylor all the credit because he stuck by me. Like you know, like I said, there's a lot of things that happened that year with Dr. Bus, and, uh, and 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 he was so supportive. So after that contract and he signed, next thing I knew, James Fox, Jimmy Fox, Mark Hardy, Jay Wells, Gary Galley, Brian McClellan, I had a dozen guys on the Kings asked me to represent them. So here I was suddenly, you know, one one guy I think I'm going to help him out. Next thing I knew, I have a dozen guys. And at that time, I moved to California originally for a sales job. I was in the optical industry. There you go. And I traveled to 10 western states in Canada. So uh, that's, what I, that's what I was doing, and I continued to do that. Even though we signed the contract in 1980, my dad would always say, don't give up your sales job. So until 87, I, I did both. I represented players, but in 87, I stopped. Well, it sounds like you had your mom and dad's work ethic there. I mean, yeah. It helped. You just taught me something I didn't know. I, I didn't know Jerry Buss owned the Kings. He owned the Lakers and the Kings at the same time? Yes. Because they all played at the Forum? Was that kind of so the deal? So he bought the Lakers, the Kings, and the Forum all from John Ken Cook. Got it. He had the whole thing. Got it. You know, he loved the Lakers, but he ended up loving hockey. He didn't right. know a lot about hockey, right. but he ended up loving the game. But, yeah, he owned all three of them, and I got to be fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time with him. He was an interesting guy. I'm um, sure. Really. That's amazing. Yeah. How I, close is the show? to who he is not close okay that's all i wanted not to close they, they don't depict him the right way that's okay. not the kind of guy he was Got no it. so we're, you're talking early 80s you repping half a dozen guys on the kings are you only repping guys on the kings are you like your name getting out there as like a shrewd business guy getting good deals 
like how does that evolve into being a like you just so back like hey i'm a hockey agent now back in the early 80s it was a different day and time it wasn't like people weren't coveting being a hockey agent you know especially hockey in la was like the last bastion of hockey there was no other teams the closest team was two hours by plane to vancouver or or colorado it wasn't like a, a big thing back then so uh it, it was something that was on my radar that I was thinking I'm going to you know, be a hockey agent is what I'm going to do. It just kind of happened, like I said, organically. I, I, it grew, grew like that by word of mouth. And as I had those players, players get traded and they go to other teams mm-hmm. and then they talk. And so I got all my players from word of mouth. You know, they, back then, we didn't have social media, none right, of that. Right. So teams would come into L.A. I'd go out. I'd meet them. Hey, you know, they start talking to me about representation so that's kind of how my my business grew and you're also i know we you and i have talked about this off camera but you're kind of the reason why hockey guys now live down by the beach in the off season that's why you could find any all the nhl guys in redondo hermosa manhattan beach like you kind of pioneered that because that's where you lived i lived there yeah, yeah. it was it was really uh it was beautiful yeah we lived in marina del rey and then i moved to manhattan beach yeah. and i went wow this is an amazing place and I introduced a lot of guys down there. I'm, I mean, in the off season, why would you not want to live there? These right. guys are coming from like Edmonton. Like, why would you? Why would you not want to live in Manhattan Beach? And they're, they're all living there now. Yeah, Pretty, all of them. Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach. That's where all the guys are at. It's delightful there. Talk. You still live there? I uh, we we sold our home Redondo Be- in Manhattan Beach. We live in Redondo Beach. Okay, close by. Still in the South Bay. Fancy. Yeah, you upgrade so, one beach so for another. I can totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, talk about the evolution a little bit of like, cause you've been in the game since the seventies of, you know, how the, the game has grown, um, de- definitely through the eighties, the people that you've kind of represented and then how the game's gotten a little bit safer. I know you've dealt with a lot of like concussions with a lot of players. You kind of like went to bat for them with, um, kind of the league, I think more or less. Yeah. If you can dive into that a little bit, I think that'd be, well, I've ended up in some controversy with the league over the years. Um, because you're going to bat for the players? Yeah. Yeah. Well, after um, – so what happened was – actually, I just back up a little bit. But um, when I first started representing Dave Taylor in 1980, I wanted to know everything about hockey because I'm going to represent I'm a 27-year-old, and I want to know what I have to know to do a good job. <laughs> so I find out that in Vegas they're having a meeting, and the, the new collective bargaining agreement is coming up, so I want to educate myself. Uh, I wasn't getting much answers back from the NHLPA. They weren't helping me. So I ended up uh, going to Vegas where they're meeting. And I'm sitting there with 16 of the most prominent NHL players. That's how many teams I believe there were there. Because I want to hear the director uh, of hockey, executive director, uh, give all the updates. So I'm sitting there, and his executive director, his assistant, comes over to me and says, Who are you? I said, I'm Ron Salser. I'm, I want to hear what's going on. I represent Dave Taylor. He walks away, and 20 minutes later, he comes back to me. He goes, got to ask you to leave. Well, why do I have to leave? He goes, because no agents are allowed in this room. So I point to the guy. I'm not using his name. Yeah. There's five books written about what I'm telling you. Okay. I point to the guy, and I say, he's an agent. He represents half the players in the league. He's right there talking on the podium. He goes, that's different. It's different. Okay. So I end up having to leave. So I leave. And then I do that contract for Dave with no help of anyone actually none no help from them at all and five years later um i see scott mellenby sign a contract for like who was a great player like 90 93 95 97 99 on like five six years with flat but howard baldwin who bought the hartford whalers 10 years earlier for four million sold them for 40 million so suddenly i'm thinking things aren't adding up for me something's not right so i took it upon myself to start going around to all the players in the league, all the teams. I went, I remember the first team I met with was Minnesota. To tell you, here I am as a 26, 27-year-old kid thinking I'm doing something, which made me a nervous wreck. But if I'm going to be in this business, I'm gonna, it's got to be right. Something's not right. Right. And I sat with the first team was Minnesota, and I would, went to all the teams about the fact that they're all happy because they're making 100000 a year, more money than their parents ever made, and everything's great, but it's not adding up. And in every room I went to, the key players would stand up and say, you know, the executive director, he did this, he did that. There was always horrible stories. And I started collecting $100 from every player. I ended up collecting 400 players, almost $40,000. So I was able to hire a guy named Ed Garvey, 
who used to be the executive director of the NFL. So he knew what an executive director's role is. Right. And he was instrumental. But just to tell you, when I went to all the teams, I was pretty much threatened everywhere I went because they knew what I was doing. So was the, the, was the bottom line for the teams because the teams were making the money and the players were getting nothing? Right. Like, it, wasn't, just... it wasn't fair. There was, there was a lot of things that were un, undisclosed. Yes. wasn't very transparent. And, you know, being a nervous guy, being younger like I was, having a wife, thinking, what am I doing? I'm really disrupting it. But if I'm going to stay in hockey, it's got to be done right. So I, I recall vividly this one. So I'm in Boston. We're talking, going to talk to the Boston Bruins. Harry Sinden's the general manager there. And I'm being told that they're looking to get the cops. They're going to throw me out. They want to put me in jail. And I'm in the— On tr- what grounds? I'm off trespassing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, wow. I, I'm standing in the locker room with the Boston Bruins, you know, Ray Borg, yeah. all of the who's who of yeah. the Boston Bruins. And I'm addressing them about the fact that something's not right with your hockey league. And out of the corner of my eye, I see the coach, who's a guy named Terry O'Reilly, yeah, no, who is probably the most fierce hockey player, one of the toughest guys to ever play the game. And if I tell you at that moment, I went, oh, crap. Just my sunk like this. Yeah. And he stands right in front of me, and I'm, I'm standing in the, in the stall. I look down at him. He looks right at me. He goes, Harry told me to throw you out of here, but I didn't see you. Oh. And he turns around and walks away. <laughs> and I can't tell you the relief that I yeah. had, like, okay, you're doing, you're doing something right. Like, that's the best vote of confidence I could have ever heard right. from a guy like Terry saying, do what you're doing. Was it because he was a former player and, exactly. and he was like, it's about time? He knew exactly okay. what was going on. Okay. your pants just a little bit once he walked away? I, I think it was more than a pee. <laughs> I, <think. laughs> I mean, you did say you relieved yourself. <laughs> he got me pretty good. But that, that, that kind of gave me a tremendous vote of confidence. So I went to all the teams, met with all the players. And, uh, you know, it's a long story short, it was in West Palm Beach. So now, seven years later, I'm going to the same meeting. Only this time, I'm going with 70 guys. Right. I brought them all with me. And there's that same meeting with all the guys sitting Players there. or other? Players and the, and the same executive director. Got it. Did all he ask you to leave again? So we're there, <laughs> and I'm sitting with 70 guys because I said I'm not going alone this time. And uh, This and is exactly one year later. Seven years later. Seven years later. It's at West Palm Beach now. Got it. And I'm there at that same meeting. And I'm looking at him, and I say, you know, we have a presentation we want to make. And he goes, you know, we're, we're busy. We got a lot going on. After the third day, we're going to play golf. We'll listen to what you have to say then. And Marty McSorley says, no, no. He said, we want to hear what they have to say right now. By the way, Mar- I know Angelo probably doesn't know. Marty McSorley is like one of the best players ever. <laughs> I know his name. Oh, okay. I mean, I know his name, but I, yeah. I don't know. Toughest player. Yeah, toughest, yeah. And, uh, How many teeth does he miss him? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people he... He was with or missing their teeth. Yeah. Marty's yeah. not missing so many teeth. Yeah, that's but, probably um, accurate. But he ended up saying, you know, we want to hear what they have to say right now. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for this executive director. We spent three days there. It ended up that he got indicted on uh, so many counts of fraud and they're going to jail. And the NHL pendulum kind of swung the other way. Yeah. Because for so many years they suppressed players, suppressed player salaries. Because this executive director was best friends with the owners. Right. And so he'd make his sweetheart deals and selling the players down the road. Well that ended. Yeah. After that. And so player salary suddenly jumped the other way. And I am very proud of that. I mean that uh, it was a hard time for me. I mean that's an I had, amazing thing to be pioneering. It was a hard yeah. thing. I had a wife and I still do, you know, for a long time and I had two young girls then. And there wasn't a day I went in my car and didn't look around and check where I'm at. You know, right. I felt I, I was a little nervous myself. So when did that tide change around 87? 87 was when this all kind of came down. Okay. And like 88, 89, 90, new GM, a new, uh, 90, I think, because they put in a new executive director. And that's when everything kind of turned. Yeah. Did, um, was it just replacing the corrupt guy or did policy actually change as well? Like were Both. there rules that changed also? But, well, things became more transparent. Suddenly, you know, back when the other guy was there, there was no salary disclosure. You didn't know what anybody was making because he didn't want them to know. You know, right. he should know what you know. And he had this kind of deal with the owners. And he ran international hockey, which was a huge moneymaker for him. And he told the players how great it was. But it did nothing for the players, which is one of the things we uncovered. So, yeah, it was, just, it was not a good situation. And that's why I was telling you earlier that those guys that I met and those players in the 80s are destitute today because – they gave their heart and soul to play hockey, played hurt, did everything, but never made any money. 
And so a lot of them are, are big trouble today. Mm. Yeah. But I was going to tell you about the concussions. You asked me about that. So Brett Burns, you know, has uh, was a very promising young player and was a great player. And I'm sitting with him and one of my other clients, who sadly is not with us anymore, Derek Bugard, the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. The boogeyman was 6'9", 270. And, That's an uh, appropriate nickname. Yeah. Derek Bugard was his name. He was a great guy. And I'm sitting with the two of them. And we're talking, and Brett Burns is saying to me, you know, I, uh, I have, I'm having a hard time. He's a huge reader. I can't, I'm having a hard time reading. And I get dizzy when I read. I can't really look down. So uh, I said, well, what, what are they telling you? He goes, well, the doctors tell me I have a sinus infection. I go, Brett, I'm not a doctor, but you don't have a sinus infection. You got a concussion, what you're describing to me. So that night I called the NHLPA who provide a doctor who they have, a guy named Dr. John Rizzos, who's mm-hmm. great. I get him on the phone, me, him, and Brent. And he goes, Brent, I know Ron's not a doctor, but he's 100% correct. You do not have a sinus infection. You've got a concussion. You should not be playing. And that next night, he had a game in L.A., and he was going to play because they want him to play. One of my other clients, a guy named Jim Johnson, who suffered tremendous head trauma, said if Brent can't read the writing on a stick, he shouldn't be going on the ice. And I go to the game that night, and I'm looking at warm-ups, and uh, Brent's not out there. And he comes up, and he says, I couldn't read the writing on my stick. I go, well, you know, you shouldn't be playing. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have a sinus, so you got a concussion. And I ended up sending him, you know, to a place, and he ended up having to live in his basement with dark for a long time, and, med- and he finally came out of it. And I kind of grilled the doctor. I said, you know, I'm Was not— the doctor the team doctor? Team doctor. This is the one who said he had a sinus infection? Yes, and the team who, doctor. And then the same doctor said, who's the other one who said that he the, doesn't have The one? doctor of like the whole NHL. Got it. The got NHL it, PA it. doctor who I called after so my conversation. So is he incompetent or is he dishonest? Or both? You yeah. choose. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I called him out. I wasn't popular for it, but I called him out. And I said, you know, I'm no doctor, but I knew in 30 seconds that he had a, a concussion. Why does the doctor telling him he's got a sinus infection? I called him out on it. It was a big article. The doctor pulls Brett Burns in and goes, what's your agent doing? Like, oh, wait. He goes, what do you mean, what's my agent doing? asking you a question. He's protecting my life. simple yeah. one, too. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. And, uh, and then Brent ended up having to shut it down that year, which was, you know, for a long time. And I'm, I'm thankful to say, after all that, uh, he's been, like, unbelievable with games played. He's, he's played, you know, close to 800 games without missing a game. How long did he have to be off the ice to really recover in a I don't recall exactly, but it was a pretty severe concussion, so it took him a while to, to get it back. But it was in Minnesota that it happened, and we weren't happy about that, to tell you the truth, yeah. that Brett uh, was told he should be playing. And By the way, you th- know that that's not the first time that doctor's probably done that then. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of bad things yeah. like that. That's one of yeah. the reasons why I went after the league and right. things that they were doing. And uh, the fact that he was playing like that, you get a compound concussion, you know, besides not playing hockey, you could be uh, yeah. questionable for life. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it, we shut him down, but it wouldn't have happened. But these are the kind of things that were going on that right. upset me. Is that pretty common, though, at least for the, the hard-hitting players to, to take a lot of ha- head trauma? Well, I think what they've done is they've now got a protocol. If they think, you know, they, they shut you down, even when you're playing in a game. It used to be back in the day, uh, you know, you got your bell rung. You get out there, you're fine. But now, if, they, if you do get that happening, they, they sit you down. Then you, there's a protocol. You have to stay out of so, much, so many yeah, days. Yeah, you have to pass X amount of tests right. before they put it's you it, back it, on. It, got, it. Now, got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, there's kind of a benchmark that every player takes at the beginning of the year, and then he will test again to see that he's – he, And that's that a result happens. of a lot of your work and, and – And finally, the league making changes because it was not run like that. It was run like a dinosaur. You know, right. no yeah. transparency, right. and the players weren't getting proper treatment. So now it's really changed dramatically, Great. yes. Well, that's something you can be proud of. Another yeah. feather in your cap. I feel, yeah, that's something I'm very, very proud of. I think that was a big thing that happened in hockey, to change it. At one point in the in the early '90s, mid '90s, how, how many? Like, is, what was it? Icy, icy luck. Icy? Well, the name of my company's called Icy Luck. Yeah. Icy luck. How I many? How many people did you rep at one time? How many NHL guys? Well, my thing was that I was a boutique kind of a guy. I wasn't looking to represent everybody. I yeah. just wanted really good guys, and. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to be doing it for over 40 years. I got seven in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I'm hoping to have two more before it's all over. And, um, you know, back then I probably was representing 
maybe in a year 20, 25, okay. yeah. which was a lot really. Yeah. But Always yeah. just you? Yeah, there was one point where I, I got a, I brought someone in to help me with some of the paperwork right. and some of the other things, but it was always just me. I stayed small. I had opportunities to sell my company on several occasions, but I never wanted to work for anyone. Yeah, and I always remember my roots of how I met the guys, right, and that I wanted to be true to that. So I wanted to be my own boss and never work for anyone. So that's kind of how I've done it. And forty years later, I'm, I'm still in it and down to my last guy, and I couldn't have a, a better guy to have. So. I think I actually think it's more impressive that you've been doing it for so long. You've repped really good human beings and good players, and you're still married. Two daughters, you know, a bunch of grandkids now. I mean, how, can you talk a little bit about keeping that sanity and that dynamic going? Because I don't. That's not normal. I don't think. Well, I think it says a lot about your wife too. My wife's amazing. Yeah. I think. I think back in the day. We didn't have all the interference with social media and all the things that exist. So, you know, you everything was right there on the table. And a lot of my clients, I think, came to me because of my wife. Because if you came to my house and met my wife and saw my two little daughters and had dinner, you go, you know, this is a pretty good guy. Yeah. I look at his family. And fortunately, you know, here I am over 40 years later. And those two girls are big girls now. Both got great son-in-laws and four grandchildren, two from each. So... I've been very it's the fortunate. Best sales pitch ever. Come, <laughs> come to my home, meet my family. We're, exactly, we're normal. Exactly. You came into my house and met my wife and had her cook a dinner. You go, this is. I want to be with this guy. Yeah. And that really, really helped me grow my business to tell you the truth. But it just, uh, it just grew organically uh, over the years. I mean, one of the biggest things that happened in my career was Pavel Bure, the Russian rocket. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he came over with his father, and his brother Valery Bure who also played in the NHL. Actually, he's married to Candace Cameron for a long time. Oh, now. yeah. What? I went to the wedding. Yeah. That's why I know it. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, Pavel Bure came in with him and his dad. The three of them were all Russian, couldn't speak English. Who they play for? The Canucks? The, oh. Pavel played for Vancouver Canucks. Yeah. That's where his career started. Yeah. He's in the Hall of Fame, too. Yeah. One yeah. of the best players. And his brother, Valeri, I was good friends with a guy named uh, Bobby Brett, part of the George Brett family and the oh, Bretts. Yeah. He owned the Spokane Chiefs. So I said... Valeri went to play for Spokane. Is that the AHL? That's some junior hockey. Junior hockey. Junior hockey. Okay. And then Pavel uh, was still in L.A. because the Russian Federation was resisting him joining the NHL because he left illegally. And so Brian Burke, who was a general manager, came down, had to go to Detroit on numerous occasions to fight to get him released so he could play. So that was a fun time in my life because I had the, the two brothers and the father in Manhattan Beach. I housed them. And we every day I would train with the boys. Yeah. I get them uh, hockey, you know, on the rink. We'd go out there. I'd skate with them. I would joke around, you know. I'm trying to build up their confidence when they were flying by me. I kind of gave them a little room to get by. Yeah, the Russian rocket. I don't think you're gonna catch him. <laughs> no, or his brother. Yeah, and the father. And we 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 you know we trained together. And his father was an Olympian swimmer. So won three medals in three Olympic games. We'd be in the pool. I thought I was a good swimmer until I started swimming against those guys. And uh, it was quite an experience being around them. But one story that always in my mind vividly, which I remember, is that when we finally end up getting through the courts in Detroit, we get Pavel signed. He goes to Vancouver. Now I'm alone with the father in L.A. He's from Russia, <clears throat> and he barely speaks the language. And we're together one day, and I word about health came up. And I go, you know, Vladimir, your health is the most important thing in your life. He goes, No. I go, no, no, you don't understand me, Vladimir. When you're, if you're strong, if you're not healthy and strong, it's the most important. No, Vladimir, what's more important than your health? I get chills thinking about it today when I tell you. He looks right at me and goes, your freedom. Uh, I went, holy crap. Yeah. Not even, on, not even on the radar. We're not even thinking about it. You right. know, it's, uh, and he said, you know, Ronnie, for 18 years, I was told when to wake up, get in the pool. You know, do this, get out of the pool and do that. Inject me with this, eat this, go home for a day, see family. 18 years, I go, Vladimir, your freedom was a big difference. And uh, interestingly enough, Vladimir ended up being a, a strength coach because he used to work with the boys. It was in New Jersey. Of the three boys, of the two boys of him, he's the only one that won the Stanley Cup with New Jersey, the father. Oh, wow. He, he ended up getting a, but that was pretty cool with, uh, with the dad. And one other story regarding that. So um, I'm at a hockey game with, uh, with Mark Spitz. You know who he is? No. Mark Spitz won 
is it seven Olympic gold medals? Oh, swimmer? Swimmer. Swimmer, okay, yeah. Famous swimmer. Yeah. All those Olympic gold yeah. medals. He won so many gold medals. And he calls me. I go, I, I'm no Mark Spitz. Yeah, he goes, my son's 13. He'd love to meet Pavel Bure. I go, okay. You go, I go up to the game. So he comes to the game. After the game, I'm down in the locker room area. And Pavel comes out. And here's Mark Spitz with his 13-year-old son. And I introduce them. And, uh, you know, it was funny because I look at Mark and I said, Mark, did you, did you know Pavel's father, Vladimir? And he looked at me and he's, it was unbelievable. I said, do I know his father? He swam in the lane next to me. He goes, we dive in the pool. He swims on the lane line. I felt every stroke. I thought he's going to pull my shorts off, my sweetos off. Every stroke. He pushed me to the gold medal. And wow. he got second place. I'm looking at him, you know, looking at Pavel like, like, wow, that's, that was against my dad. How ironic that Ron, was. Ron, your life is amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was pretty cool, though. I, I really enjoyed that. But there's a lot of interesting things. Pavel was a very unique guy. Did you tell that story to your parents also? And yeah. Your relationship to freedom? Yeah. Well, my parents knew all about that. And they, my dad was, uh, I called him the chairman of the board. You know, I, I was very fortunate. I was alone, my own business. And uh, I always knew I could talk to my father about anything and everything. And he gave me a lot of unbelievable guidance mm. when I had issues with contracts or questions about things that were happening. I always knew I'm going to get the straight, straight scoop from my dad. Yeah and how to deal with things. And he gave me a lot of strength and a lot of courage to do things that I did. So he reinforced me quite Be a bit. Because Angelo just segued a little bit back into your parents, and I know they didn't bring up the way they're, you know, they're the Holocaust or, or the way they were raised, or what, at what point did you get them to open up? And I know they spoke at you, was it at USC they spoke? And then obviously the book that got published, when did they actually come out and when did you convince them to, tell this story because it's very important for other people to hear. So <clears throat> I was in my 40s. It was in the 90s. Okay. Uh, here I am. I, I, and I watched Schindler's List mm. against my father's wishes. Even then, he didn't want me to see it. He wanted me to feel like I should know anything. But I saw Schindler's List, and I heard that Steven Spielberg started the Shoah Foundation, which was archiving uh, survivors, survivors of, yeah. uh, of the Holocaust. Yeah. And um, so I contacted the foundation, Show Foundation, which is housed at USC. And he, uh, and he said to me, if you can get your parents to speak, that's what we're doing. So I went to my mother and father, and I, I looked at them, and I, I said, you know, I, I went to Sushin, I heard about the Show Foundation. I really would like you to speak because they could do a video of your lives, what happened. And I remember my, my mother and father looked at me, and they said, we, we don't want to, th we're trying to put that in the past. Right. That's not something we ever want to think about anymore. That's behind us. And we, we, can't, we can't focus on it. I had my two little daughters. They were probably five years old, five and six maybe. I said, if you don't talk about it, those little girls will never know what happened with their grandparents. And the way my parents were, like, they're, they're such special people and so bright. Looked at it and said, okay, we'll do it. Which couldn't have been a harder thing for them to do. Right. Like I said to you, I don't know how you put your head on a pillow. I have little things happen in my life. I can't sleep at night. Yeah. I think about what my mother and father saw, losing their, their everyone and being in a camp and doing what they had to go through. It was horrific. So ends up they do the video. The video is, it's I mean, a, you could find it, but is it like, it's an interview. So there's a two-hour video of my mother. Okay. There's a two-hour video of my father that appears in all the Holocaust museums. And I'm sitting in my home in Manhattan Beach. I've got a beautiful big home. Everything's going great in my life. And I put the video in. And to tell you, and you can't put it to the words, for the first time in your life, you see your mother talking about what it was like being a 16-year-old girl when the Nazis came in and took her father away, who was a doctor, eliminated him right away. They take, she goes with her mother, her brother, and her grandmother to Auschwitz. And you stand in front of Joseph Mengele, who is one of the worst criminals ever and she sees her mother brother and grandmother go this way and my mother goes the other way she's 16 years old never to see them again and what my mother had to experience and I'm watching this she's always joked around with me my mother was never serious whenever I asked her questions she'd always laugh it off she didn't want to talk about it mm -hmm. and now here I am now hearing her talk about what really happened it overwhelmed me yeah you know, it bothered me a lot and then my dad same thing you know a brilliant guy and that's what made me amazed about my dad, because he was 19 when they took him away. 
how he was so smart to come to this country at 35 and make 16 patents when you, you know, at 19 was the furthest your education went. And so when I saw that video, it bothered me enough that I wanted more, so I wanted to hire a writer to do their life story. And I found this woman who I can't say enough great things about. Mm -hmm. And she spent over 100 hours interviewing my mother and my father. And she was incredible. She fell in love with my parents. And the book she wrote was spectacular. And it came, and I didn't want to do it as a book, just so you know. I just wanted a manuscript. So we have a very small family. I've never met a grandparent. I've never met an uncle. Right. I've never met a, you know, anyone because they're all gone. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, just have like a memoirs, a manuscript for my children. And my sister had kids, three kids. So that's why I did it. But 15 years later, the writer who did the book gave it to one of her good friends who's a notable writer. She read it. She goes, you need to publish this book. This is an unbelievable story. So she wrote a book proposal, which we sent out. And I had four publishers that wanted to do it. And I chose the publisher that did the Diary of Anne Frank, mm. Valentine Mitchell, because I thought that would be the best people to do the book. Yeah. And then, you know, the book came out, I think, 18 or 19. And I thought, who's going to be interested in reading about my parents? No one cares. And I ended up, where I have a home out in the desert, I bought 50 copies of the book and I donated it. Next thing I know, I have people coming up to me, hugging me, thanking me. I bought eight copies. I gave it to my son, told him you need to read this book. Then they had a book club. 75 people showed up. And then just organically, this book kept growing and growing and growing to the point where it's now the second bestseller behind the Diary of Anne Frank. Oxford, which is the highest level of prestige, that recognized this book as one of the top books. And um, I'm very proud of that. Like I, it's something I never really thought about. You know, That wasn't the reason I did it. I just did it originally to have a manuscript. Right. And now it's in a book. And ultimately, with your help, I'm going to find a good producer and make a movie out of this thing. We know some people, but the first thing we need to get out is what is the name of the book? The name of the book is No Past Tense. If I had it here, I could could show it to you. But it's No Past Tense is the name of the book. Well, it's okay. We'll put the... um... Actually, there's a website, nopasttense.com. Great. I'll put that up in the... If you go on that website, you'll see. We'll put put the link and when we edit this, we'll We'll make sure we show the picture of the book and, and yeah. You guys are unbelievable. You no do pa- it all here. No past tense. We do everything. You no do past it all. Tense. I've never. I'm excited. I've read A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I've yes. read Diary of Anne Frank. Big fan of a lot of. Well, that's those are great stories. I read those, but I've just. Gulag Archipelago been... by Solzhenitsyn. You know, like those kind of like just what humanity can do in its worst moments. Like I don't know, and the and the people that can overcome it. That's, that's well, you, pretty You're powerful. just showing off right now. I am a little bit. Um, are your parents still with us? No, my parents are both gone. Were they alive when the book was published, when it, when it came out? Or were they still with us? They knew all about the book. Okay. Um, it might, they, were, they were not around when it was published. They, they did everything back, like I said, and it was all finalized. But my mom would have seen the, not the final copy, but she read it. My parents right. were instrumental in, in getting it done. Yeah. And this woman was what I told you made it happen in, the, in her interviews. She brought a lot out of my parents, and she found out a lot of things. Actually, it was interesting because part of the book, when you read it, so my, my father, there was a point where they would be talking with each other, and the way she wrote it is a way it's never, book's never been written before. She has them interacting, talking to each other so during the story. conversational? Yeah, yeah, so she stops, and you can see my parents are talking to each other. And my mother was talking about how she was online in Auschwitz, but they took her away to some place where she was working in some munitions factory underground. And my father thought she had traumatized memory. He, he said, no, that didn't happen. He didn't believe it. He thought she was traumatized thinking that that happened. Yeah. And this woman that wrote the book went back and found the place where my mother was with the documents that showed my mother's name that she was there. Mm. It was a munitions factory. Yeah. In Germany, which was unbelievable, to tell you the truth. Now, did your, found that. did your mother and father meet? They knew each other previous? Like, when did they meet? So, my father had a sister who went to school with my mother. Okay. And so, my mother and his sister were friends, so she knew of my father. When they came back after the war was over, yeah. uh, when they came out, they lived in ghettos. And my mother went and found my dad. At that point, after they got back, and that's when they met. 
got it. And that's when they went with the underground organization called the Haganah to Israel because they felt like they had to get away from, from Europe. Hmm. Gotcha. They now, have. We're super lucky to have you on today, but like, do you, do you normally talk about this? Do you go speak? Like your parents did, do you go to the Shoah Foundation occasionally? Do you do you uh, go talk to you know young Jewish kids at schools? Like do you? Anytime I get invited to do anything regarding my parents, I'm all in. And actually, the the book has gained so much momentum that it's in over 625 university libraries today, and one of the local universities, LMU, and it's actually on their curriculum that students are taking this book as a reading material and having classes on it. And so I'm always asked to come in and speak at the end of a semester to the, to the students. And I can't tell you how moving that is for me because with the questions they come up with and the things they want to know, and it's, it's pretty incredible that it's being taught in these universities. And it's also was very cinematically written. So it's also like they do some movie kind of classes in, in universities. So uh, I'm very proud of that because that was never the intention that I said. I just originally did it just so I have something from manuscript for my kids, and now all of a sudden it's grown into this where many universities are adapting it in their curriculum. And um, I'm, I'm always willing to talk about anything regarding my parents. As a child growing up and being a young kid, my dad, because of what, you know, he, he lived in a concentration camp. Yes, move, move forward a little bit closer. Okay, Thank my you so dad much. was in a concentration camp where he'd see piece of crap Nazi beating the crap out of another guy and he wants to go at him and he can't and he had a lot of anger issues and there were three times I vividly remember being a young boy seeing my father getting in a fight all three times were because he was protecting someone that was being bullied mm -hmm. and one of them was at a hockey game and so it was pretty funny I'm at a hockey game it was a playoff game at the forum and I'm sitting I'm standing actually along the glass where the Kings are winning out with probably four or five guys that weren't in the game and all of a sudden they go shoot there's a fight up there I look up, that's my dad. Your dad? <laughs> what? <laughs> so I run over there, and I get there, and what happened was there's a guy smoking a cigar, and my father's sitting behind my mother, my father, my mother, and another couple, a woman. And so the husband of the other woman says to the guy, you know, that cigar smoke really bothers my wife. Do you think you could put that out? And the guy takes a big puff and turns around and blows it right in her face. Oh, like and a my douche. And my father looks at the guy, he goes, he asked you so nicely. And the guy looks at my father, well, you're going to do something about it? He didn't finish saying what he was going to say. And my dad knocked him out as quick as he could. He just knocked him right out, cold cocked him. And that's how my dad was. He was, he was a fearless guy. He backed from down from no one. And like I told you, it happened three occasions. That's just one of them that I, that was, that I witnessed. Who knows what else there was. But I right. think I got a lot of that from, from my parents, yes. Wow. Wow. Can you, um, would you, we, uh, we did a little cut, not that the audience would know, but uh, can you go ahead and hold up that book? Because we paused so you could go get a copy of it. And go ahead and hold it right up to that camera right there. No past tense. And we'll have links below this right about now. And the website is uh, nopasttense.com. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to order it there and you can read all the reviews and this blurb on the very top is Anthony Robbins, who uh, was a big proponent of my parents. Tony Robbins, motivational speaker, yes. and also um, I think he's got a couple other titles as well. But yeah, pretty well, impressive guy. Yeah, yeah. so he oh, was yeah. kind enough to do a, that for us on this book. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Is there anything when you were watching those videos? And you, I mean, this might be too hard for you to talk about, but because um, your parents did not talk about their childhood and what happened to them to you because they didn't want you to feel bad when you started watching what they filmed what stood out to you the most was it the courage they had was it the like resilience was it how they found each other and found love through this whole you know and and led with love through this whole process and how they took your family from you know israel to new york like you said at 35 years old like what was the thing that really like or was it all of it so that's a, that's a good question and uh, something that, you know, all of a sudden you're in your 40s, you've got a wife and you've got daughters, and you see the incredible strength of what your parents had to endure. The f you know, I remember feel feeling fearful when this pandemic started, they tell us we've got to be in the house. I'm going, how do my parents feel when they're, they're rounding up Jews and taking them everywhere, and they're losing all their family? I was like incredibly overwhelming. And to hear my mother 
say she was a 16-year-old girl and what it was like to see her brother and, and, and mother and grandmother walk that way. She goes the other way. She goes, they bring you in. I'm 16. They shave, they, they shave my head. They de-lice me. They make you feel like an animal. And then you stand there. These guards were so cruel. They say, you see that smoke? That's your mother's and father's and sister. That's going to be you tomorrow. You're going to be that smoke. I mean, the fear, and I'm hearing my mother, who never talked like that, saying that. And at one point, they thought my mother had passed because everyone got this horrible diarrhea, and they threw her in with other bodies. But she was still alive. And a friend of hers actually found her and pulled her out. Everything I'm telling you is proven, is documented, mm-hmm. 100%. And, you know, they never wanted to talk about it because it's a different part of your life. I mean, you... You want to exclude it. You don't want to think about it. Of course. So the fact that that got him to do that when they were in their 60s, and like I said, you could see the video and hear him talking yeah. about it. I, I'm, 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 I'm very proud of it, and I'm very humbled by the reception that the book has gotten because it's been— Would you ever be open to the idea of that being made into a movie? That's definitely something I'd want to do. I feel like uh, the, what makes the book great— is that I don't want it to be a book about Jewish people or the Holocaust. I want it to be a book about the character and courage that no matter what happens in your life, mm. you know, you, your spirit's broken. You lose your mothers, your fathers, your sisters, your brothers, your life, everyone. You have to learn your fifth and sixth language. You have to start life over again. You can still find joy happiness, family, have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, Those and have incredible lives. Those are universal virtues. That universal could, virtues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Better than I could say. Universal no, you, virtues. You're no, saying you say, great yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's um, how I feel. So uh, I think it's been really received well, like in university, like LMU. I think those kids relate to it because as the, this Dr. Ha, uh, Holly, who's a, the doctor who's accepted, who's taken the book on it, the program at uh, – Holly Levitsky is her name. She says the students are so moved by it because they relate to it because they're like the age of my parents were at that time. Yeah. And they're thinking about what they're going through yeah. and how life there is for them. And then they read about this and they go, they gain strength. It's like, wow. Well, I think once nothing you, also once you hear that, those stories and read that book, your life is very, very Good. small yeah. compared to like what you know, people went through. How bad it can yeah, actually how, get. Yeah. I think it gives people strength, and that's what Dr. Levitsky says, and that's what the students said. Every sem- seminar, at the end of the semester, I mean, I go and I speak to them because they want to. They've done the, they finished the course, and now they want They get to meet. I mean, not that I'm going to be special, but the son of the the book they just read. Hmm. So they're really interested in asking me fascinating questions. You probably learn a lot from the kids from their from their perspective of what they're getting from the book. Well, they make me think a lot, almost as much as you're making me think right now. That's the best compliment you've ever get. Uh, Tony's ever gotten. And Angela's <laughs> gonna edit that. Yeah, so. I'll cut it out. Don't worry <laughs> yeah. about it. <laughs> I don't need his e- ego getting too big. <laughs> so, not the, We'll go back to hockey a little bit, but um, I mean, this is an amazing part of your life, and obviously, you're in, you know, the second half, and you're still representing one of the best players in the NHL. You have obviously this passion to get your parents' book out. Um, what what else? What else is on the horizon for? For Ron, what else? What else we got going on? Well, you're this a scratch. Point, you're a scratch golfer. I'm not a scratch golfer. <laughs> I like golfing. I wish I was scratch. But no, for me, it's all about my family. Um, like I said, I've been really fortunate. My wife's unbelievable, so supportive, and I'm one of those lucky guys that has a soulmate. So that's great. And I have two loving daughters that are great. Um, really close with them, and two son-in-laws. I could have picked handpicked better guys and four grandkids so it's all about my family i've been doing it for over 40 years i feel like i've made an an impact on the game and uh i have great memories so now for me it's it's going to enjoy brent burns's career for the next couple of years for sure and uh spending time with my family but um you know i have some interesting stories you may want to hear about different players i had yeah some of the negotiation and things that happened i want to hear it all so so i'll tell you a few Eddie Belfour is in the Hall of Fame. He was a great goaltender. Goalie, yeah, I was going to say. Goalie, great goalie, hockey Hall of Fame. And he played in Chicago. That's where he got most of his recognition. He got traded to San Jose. And the reason I'm telling this story is I want you to get a feel for how special hockey players are. 
I mean, I'm not trying to degrade other people, but you couldn't get me to represent an NFL player right? or a basketball player, maybe the odd baseball player. But I just want to show you about the character of hockey players. And it's not just Belfort. It's a lot of guys. But this story kind of epitomizes it. So Ed was a great goalie. We were in San Jose. Things, he was hurt when he got traded to Chicago, San Jose that year. Things didn't go great. And it wasn't seemed like I'm getting to a contract agreement with uh, the guy's name was Dean Lombardi, the GM. And uh, he's going to become a free agent on July 1. And on July 1, I get a phone call from a guy named Bob Ganey, who was a great player, who was a general manager of the Dallas Stars. And Bob said, Ron, first call in the morning, like 7 a.m. on the July 1, he can call me. I want to sign Ed Belfour. I think we can win a Stanley Cup with him, and here's what I'm willing to pay him. It was a good offer. So I called back Ed. I said, Ed, great news, July 1, right away. Bob Ganey called me. Here's the offer he made. But there's a lot of teams that want you. I'm going to get a lot more offers, and I could use that as a base to kind of get more and more and more and more. He goes, nope, I want to accept that contract. I go, what? He goes, no, he called you first. He wants me. I want to play for him. Hmm. Not about how much more money could you get me. I want to play there. And guess what happened? He went to play for Bob Ganey in Dallas. And guess who won a Stanley Cup for the Dallas yeah. Stars that Ed year? Belfort, yeah. Ed Belfour. He outplayed Patrick Waugh and had an unbelievable year. So was that so, Dallas versus Colorado? Colorado. Yeah. He beat him. Yeah. And that was in the playoffs. But then the final was, uh, I think it was against Buffalo. But yeah, he was. Um, that, that was that was pretty unbelievable. That that tells you a little bit about the kind of character of of the guys. Um, I've had Eddie Olchek. Eddie Olchek was a was a great player. He played with the Winnipeg Jets, and he was one of five players to score over thirty goals five consecutive years. You don't have players doing that anymore. Right. He had five year five one of five. I think the other guys were Gretzky. I think it might have been Dale Howarchuk, Steve Eiserman. Lemieux? Five guys. I'm not sure Lemieux, but it's five guys that had over 30 goals. And he gets traded from the Winnipeg Jets to the New York Rangers. You're going to like this story. This tells you about what hockey guys like and character. This is unbelievable. Gets traded to the New York Rangers. Mike Keenan's the head coach. He doesn't like Eddie Olchek. Eddie's not his kind of guy. Eddie goes from being a first-line player to a fourth-line player who's in and out of the lineup. Now, to me... Everybody's a good guy when things are going your way. We're all good right. guys when things are going. Right. What do you like when things aren't going your way? Yeah, that's when it. you're getting fucked, what's going on in your life? What's happening? So here's Eddie O, who's got this incredible resume, and he's not playing. He shows up every day to the New York Ranger locker room and stretches the guys. It was like a big joke. Heave ho. He'd like do all these things, stretching the guys, keeping everybody loose. And he played maybe, I don't recall exactly, maybe 47 games that year. They go to the Stanley Cup. They win round one, round two, round three. They go into round four. He hasn't played a game. In order to get on the Stanley Cup, your name on the cup, you have to play one game in the Stanley Cup final. And there was an injury, and he didn't get in. They didn't put him in. He didn't play. So he never played a game, and they won the Stanley Cup so that year. So this is 94? Yes. Okay. And they won the Stanley Cup that year. And after they win the cup, obviously a big celebration, and... To me, this is one of the most amazing things that ever happened in hockey is that every year the New York Rangers have a, a big dinner for the players, and they always give a player's player award. And here's this year that they won the cup. Mark Messier didn't get it. Yep. Mike Brian Richter Leach. didn't get Brian it. Leach. Brian Leach yep. didn't get it. Guess who the players voted in the year they won the Stanley Cup to the guy who never played in a playoff game and only played 47 games who got the player's player award by, the, by the, his teammates. Eddie Olchek. That was unbelievable in a year like that. And the Stanley Cup comes out. And the Stanley Cup, the guys looking at it, doesn't have Eddie Olchek's name on it. They didn't put his name because if you don't play at least one game or so many regular season games, you don't get your game name on the cup. Is that an NHL rule? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Adam Graves, who was a teammate of Eddie Ol, calls Gary Bettman and says, Hey, Gary, if you don't add Eddie Olchek's name on the cup, I want you to remove my name. I don't want my name on the cup. So it's like a Rudy situation. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark Messier. I take my name off the cup. Guys are calling. So guess what happened? I actually have a picture I could show you guys where I'm with the cup with Marion Gabrick. And someone took the picture. I'm showing him Eddie Olchek's name. It's added after the fact. Send, us, send me send that picture. Send me the picture and sure we'll put, we it put it in. Put it in. 
Okay. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> okay. Angela and I have been in the restaurant business for years, and I always have told everyone when people ask me who are the your best players you ever waited on, hockey players and country music people. Those are like my top two by far. Of all the athletes, hockey players are the nicest, most humble. Tip and, well. And other than the fact that they're like, <laughs> you know, probably got huge beards or really big and not a lot of teeth, like they're like, yeah, the, nice, the nicest, humble most generous people will leave you tickets for a game. Will sign anything for your nephew. Like no other athletes that I've met in the last 16, 17 years have, have done that. So, so yeah, exactly. So you've just reiterated exactly how I feel. Yeah. Cause as I said to you earlier, these are guys that come from good homes with good values, good morals, work ethic, discipline, loyalty, easy. I mean, it's just great. I've been so fortunate to be around guys like this for over 40 years. And that's why I've really loved doing what I'm doing. I've, I truly am one of those guys that could say, I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. Right. I mean, I get to negotiate contracts with these guys and hang out with some of the best players in the world. And my daughters have grown up with my wife has seen them. I've been blessed. So, And in a sport that's such a grind, like on your body and like mental. I mean, it's, it's tough. Oh, It's tough. And uh, people, you know. The work ethic it takes to become where they are is amazing. So, no, it's it's, it's pretty special for me. I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, I talk about, like, players like Marion Gabrick, who I represented. And he was playing for the New York Rangers. And he was one of the best players in the world. And he fell out of favor with the coach uh, over there. It was um, John Tortorella. And they wanted to trade him to Columbus. And so he had a no-trade clause. So he didn't have to be traded. So right. Neil Smith, the GM, calls me and says, you know, he's not really getting along with John Tortorella. We want to trade him to Columbus, but you have to accept it. Yeah, you got to waive the no trade. got to waive the no yeah. trade. Yeah. So I call Gabby. I say, Gabby, here's what's going on. So he looks at me, he asks me, he goes, so if that was you, what would you do? I said, well, someone doesn't want me, I'm out of there. Yeah, right. He goes, that's exactly how I feel. So he goes to Columbus. And things didn't work, you know, he liked Columbus, but things didn't work out great there. He got there, he had a knee injury. Took him a while to recover. As soon as he gets back, he breaks his clavicle. Oof. And now he calls me. It's early January. And he goes, you know, Ronnie, I think I'm done. I, I'm not having fun anymore. I've had two injuries. You know, I feel like my career is over. And it hasn't happened often where I had to walk a guy back off the plank. But I said, Gabby, you're one of the most electrifying players in the world. You're not done. You're far from done. Just, just get yourself better. And yeah, fortunately, get healthy first. Yeah. Get healthy and yeah. get better. Yeah. And fortunately, through my relationships, you know, I represented both Luke Robitaille and Rob Blake, who were yeah. the LA Kings. And I talked to them about about Gabby. So they orchestrate a trade to get Marion to come to play in LA. He shows up. They put him on the line with Kopi Kopitar, mm -hmm. and he lights it up right through the end of the season, and right through the playoffs, right through to winning a Stanley Cup. But before that. I'm sitting having breakfast with him at a place called Good Stuff in Hermosa Beach by the water. And we're sitting there, and I, this is June. I said, Gabby, a few months ago, January, remember our conversation where you were? And now here you are on the eve of tomorrow night playing as the New York Rangers for the Stanley Cup, your former team, how life can change. And I just never forget that look on his face, like that smirk, like yeah. how unbelievable that was when he was ready to stop playing hockey. And then we went against the New York Rangers, and they, they blew right through the team and ended up winning the Stanley Cup. And I, I have to say, one of my I have a lot of proud moments representing players, but he did something that no, you know, I I I've had great things happen. But I'm at the game, they win, uh, and I'm sitting there, game, they're done, the celebration starts on the ice, the Stanley Cup comes out, everybody's, you know, in euphoria. But I've got my wife and daughters with me, and I said, you know, we could be here for hours. Right. So you girls might as well go home. So my wife and daughters left. Not five minutes later, I see Gabby skating around the ice like, he knows I'm out there somewhere. He's looking for where, where is he? He looks, he sees me. Come on down, come on down. I come down, he wants to bring me down on the ice to celebrate the cup with the team. That was like unbelievable. Yeah. Like what a moving moment for me to have this guy showing that great appreciation and gratefulness to say, I want you down here with us to celebrate. So. I've been blessed by having fortunate moments like that. That's also a little bit of like a like a Jerry Maguire moment. I was just thinking that where, you're where, the Jerry Maguire. You are. We're literally like you didn't <laughs> on get the ice. you didn't get too big 
and you kept like that personal relationship with the guys and you know you were able to talk people off the ledge and like work them through injuries and really care about people like brent burns and like his concussions and be like listen like i'm in it for the betterment of the human rather than just the athlete and that's probably why you've been so successful i think it had a lot to it's actually funny you say that because you know marty who i knew pretty well mcsorley he was playing at san jose and i remember after the movie i happened to be at san jose and i'm watching practice on the ice and marty's skating he's screaming up to me Ronnie, show me the money. <laughs> no, show me the man. money. You scream. <laughs> so if you didn't, funny. if you didn't land in Marina del Rey and live with those guys, or live in that same complex with those guys, what do you think you'd be doing right now? Well, obviously, you know it's a very hypothetical question. Yeah, and you know I feel like I was really fortunate to be at the right place at the right time, and I took advantage of an unbelievable opportunity with Dave Taylor. Well, you couldn't have a better first client, and that's what yeah. kind of launched my career. I never really gave much thought to where I'd be. I think I would have been successful at something because I know my character, my personality. So also the 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 way you were raised, the way I was I raised, think, that had yeah. everything to do with yeah. it. You know, I I I was going to do fine, right? Regardless, but what what an opportunity to be in such an illustrious career with incredible athletes who. Um, who really embellished my life tremendously. And my wife and, you know, my daughters. We've been to, you know, when Belfort won the Cup, you know, I took my wife and daughters. We all went. I've been around it a lot. We all went to Chicago to celebrate with him. I've been up to the Shushwap Lake huh? you know, on the on the boat. I could tell you incredible stories with the Stanley Cup with Daryl Sidor when he won the Cup and Eddie Olchek and Brian McClellan. I've had a lot of guys win the Cup, so I've had some incredible celebrations. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty sweet feeling. I just... Wished it would have happened this year for Brent Burns. Yeah, it, it could still. Could still, I mean, but they, this was they a, good a good opportunity. Yeah. They, they had a great squad. They had two severe injuries that really, I think, hurt them offensively, which prevented that. Wow. I mean, you've had a pretty amazing life. It makes Angela and I think that we've done nothing. Yeah. And cool. um, <laughs> we're excited to read No Past Tense and to, to get that out there more in the world than it already is. And. I'm excited for The Raft of Life by Ron Salser. I wait for your biography to come out. It's going to be amazing. Me. She wants to, uh, yeah, why not? I, I was really proud I got a book done on my parents, but. Um, I think you're next. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I'll see. We'll Think hire somebody it. to write oh, it for you. By the way, you have grandchildren now, too, that are going to want to know that story. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, so, you see what he did? You see how he took what you said and then uh, yeah. threw it right back in the conversation? Yeah. yeah. Well, you're welcome. Did. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> if you want me to write the forward, I will. Um, all right. Well, uh, let, we're going to wrap this up here. Um, thank you, everybody, for um, tuning in on another episode of So How'd You Get Here. Ron, thank you for being here today and sharing all those uh, Appreciate it. Just great anecdotes and good insight into life and what it looks like to actually be successful and the hard work that goes behind it. And in pleasure. It. Thanks so, for having um, me. I really appreciate being here. It's Really appreciate you being here. So that's it, everybody. Follow us, like us, subscribe. We're on Spotify, uh, Google Play, iTunes, YouTube, uh, YouTube TikTok. Uh, TikTok. We're on, we're on all the things. We're on all the things. Yeah. Uh, like, subscribe, share, uh, tell a friend. Instagram. Um, Instagram. Instagram. We are on Instagram. Yeah. Ron just said it like he just discovered it. <laughs> Instagram? <laughs> the only social media the, I know. The Instagram? <laughs> Instagram? <laughs> I'll have to add you guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. We'll we'll definitely accept your uh, we'll follow and follow you back. All right, everybody. Have a good week. Uh, coming to you from Hollywood, California. That's it. Signing off. Tony, anything you want to say? Nothing. All all right. Right. See you next time. See you next time. Uh, have a good week, everybody.